Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in Him. Please turn to Galatians chapter 2. It's page number 972. If you're using one of the Bibles there in the seat in front of you. And we're turning into two places today. Romans chapter 4. It's page number 941. So you need both open or available to you in some form or another. Galatians 2, Romans 4, page 972, 941. If you were not here last Sunday, then I will warn you in advance, you may just be a little lost today. Today is part two of a two-part sermon on the nature of true saving faith. We're asking the question, what is it? What is true saving faith? What exactly is God looking for when he says that he wants us to believe, he wants us to have faith? This is the question we're trying to answer. And uh, we're just really picking up almost exactly where we left off last week. But as we do each Sunday, let's begin by reading our passage here in Galatians, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. We'll begin here in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Father, I I ask your blessing on our time in your word this morning. Spirit, I ask that you will fill me and speak through me, that you will help us all, everyone in this room. I don't know the spiritual status of really anybody. Only you know the hearts, what's truly in someone's heart and where their faith truly lies, but I pray that regardless of where anyone is this morning, that you will speak to them and work in them. For those in here whose faith is in you and you alone, may this time around your word comfort them and give them a confidence to go out 
and live for you in a way perhaps that they haven't been doing, to remember that there is nothing, nothing in themselves that you accept, that your grace is given freely and is given through your Son, and that alone. And for anyone in here whose faith is not in you alone, I pray that our time together around your word this morning will be used by you to open their eyes to see that as you have done with so many in the past. Help them to come face to face with their own hearts, their own confidence, their own faith, lack thereof. And may they be changed by it this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The last Sunday, all I wanted to do was to really lay out the problem for us uh, regarding the nature of true saving faith. Here in Galatians chapter 2, particularly verse 16, Paul says that we are not and cannot be justified by the works of the law. In other words, we cannot ever be declared righteous before God through somehow obeying Him, obeying His commands, what He's called us to do, things that are good, good things that He wants us to do. We, we can never be made righteous by that. The only way that God will declare us not guilty in His sight is through faith, faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, for anyone who, like me, has grown up in or around Christianity, that is, of course, old news. We have been hearing that phrase, that terminology, that kind of language for so long that it has, quite frankly, become trite to most of us. We don't even think very deeply about what it means to have faith or what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. I know that I didn't. As I have shared with you in the past, I grew up in a Christian home. Um, I grew up in church. In fact, I have never known a day of my life where I was not part of a church. I grew up attending a Christian school. I went to a Christian college. I was as immersed as anyone could be in Christian culture from the very, very earliest days of my life. When I was nine years old, and I, again, I've shared some of this before, so bear with me if you're familiar with it, but if you're not, you can hear it for the first time. When I was nine years old, I was attending a church service at our church. It was either a Sunday or a Wednesday night. I don't remember which. I just know it was nighttime. And the preacher that night was preaching on hell. And he was describing it in all of its biblical horror, rightly so, explaining what it was and why one would never want to go there. And as I sat there and listened to that sermon and to his vivid description of, of hell, I mean, I was terrified, as I would think anyone would be listening to that. I was terrified, and I was thinking to myself as I'm sitting there listening, I just, I don't want to go there. And so when he got to the end of his sermon, and he says, if there's anyone in the room who, who isn't saved, who doesn't want to go to hell when they die, raise your hand. And you can imagine, I'm one of the first ones to put my, my hands up in the air. I, I, hey, that's me. I don't want to go. And so, you know, after he did that, he said, okay, well, everybody, bow your heads, close your eyes. If, if you don't want to go to hell, you want to be saved, you can come up here to the front and talk with me. And so I was one of the ones who went up to the front. And so when I got there, he uh, asked me why I'd come. And I told him, I came because I want to be saved. I don't, I don't want to go to hell. And so he goes, okay, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior, the Son of God? And the answer was yes, of course I believe that. I mean, I had never known anything but that. That's all I had heard from, again, the earliest days of my life. And so that was an easy one. I could affirm that without any question. He asked uh, if I believed that I was a sinner 
and I did. Again, I had heard that from the earliest days of my life, that all of us were sinners, and so I affirmed that as well. He asked if I believed that, that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and of course, I believed that as well. And he asked if I wanted Jesus to forgive me of my sins and to come into my heart and save me. And of course, I did. That's why I had gone up there in the first place, right? So, so here I am now at the front, and he tells me, okay, if you really believe all these things, if that's what you really want, then, you know, repeat this prayer, or this kind of prayer, anyway, after me. Dear Jesus, dear Jesus, you know, forgive me of my sins, forgive me of my sins. I believe you're the Savior, I believe you're the Savior. We've come into my heart and saved me. We've come into your heart, my heart and saved me in Jesus' name, amen. You know, something like that. You guys are probably familiar with that sort of approach. When I got done with all of that, he asked me a question. He goes, did you really mean all of those things? And I said, absolutely. He goes, well, if you really meant all those things, then you, Jesus is now your Savior. You're now saved. You don't have to worry about going to hell. And of course, you know, I'm relieved. I'm, I'm elated that I got past that. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to have to go to hell. And I'll come up to the front and I've believed all the right things and I've done all the right things. And now everything is fine. I'm saved. Great. Uh, fast forward now nine years. I am 18 at this point, and I am a freshman in college. And in those nine years since that experience, that Sunday or Wednesday night, you could probably best describe my life with the word ambiguous. What I mean by that is, is there was nothing in my life that would necessarily tell you that I either was or was not a Christian. You know, I had, I had some problems. <laughs> my first problem was that I was generally a, a good kid. I really was. I, I've always been a people pleaser at heart, which means I don't like making people mad. I don't want them upset with me. I don't like disappointing people. And so I was never very overtly sinful or overtly rebellious. I would generally do what I was told and, and stay within, you know, the bounds and that kind of thing. So I, I wasn't a bad kid on top of that. I had spent at this point of my life 18 years immersed in Christian culture. I knew how to, to live. I knew what to do. I knew what not to do. I knew the answers to most of the questions you might ask. I mean, looking back at it now from this perspective, I can see there were a lot of things I didn't know. But at the time, I knew a lot more than most people. I, I had memorized tons of Bible verses and, you know, you name it, I, I could do it. I could answer it. I was thoroughly indoctrinated in Christianity uh, that's no credit to me. And so here I am as a, as a freshman in college right now. I've got these three things that are true of my life. I have a typical American salvation story or experience from when I'm nine. I have a not overtly sinful life. I'm generally a good kid and I know it. And I have a lot of, of biblical knowledge. I know a lot about the scriptures. I know a lot of scripture. I, 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 I was indoctrinated. I was totally in. And that, you know, those three things don't sound like they're very bad. And really, they're not very bad. They're quite good. But for me, for me at this point, um, I knew something wasn't right. You know, through a series of events that I really do not have time to tell this morning, and so I will not tell them, I ended up there that freshman year of college. And again, I'm at a Christian college because that's all I'd ever known in life was Christian culture. So I went to a Christian college. I'm, I'm here at this Christian college for the very first time reading the Bible because I wanted to. And you think, oh, that's good. That sounds right. Well, no, no, actually it wasn't good because it wasn't being motivated by, by positive things or good things. The reality was is that, uh, again, through a series of events that I don't have time to tell, 
I was growing more and more troubled by everything that I was reading in the scriptures, and so I kept coming back to them, trying to like get my questions answered or my fears uh, eased or something. I just kept coming back, hoping it would get better, but the more and more that I came back to the scriptures, the more troubled I became, the more unsettled I became. In addition, I was hearing sound preaching and Bible teaching for really the very first time in my life, uh, this college that I had gone to. And the more I got of this, the more troubled I became. I didn't like what I was hearing from my teachers or from the people who were preaching to us. I didn't like what I was reading because everything that I was hearing and reading was telling me that I was a far, far worse person than I had ever realized. And that God was not generally benevolent towards me or pleased with me as I had imagined him to be. I was hearing and reading that all of my supposed goodness didn't matter, which is really hard for someone like me who's a people pleaser to hear that, you know, maybe, maybe God's not as happy with me as I would like to think he is. You know, that's, that's just not the kind of thing you want to really process if that's the kind of personality you are. I, I really didn't like that. And here I am learning that God is upset with me in a way I had never understood and that there was absolutely nothing I could do to earn his favor, which took me back, takes me back to that prayer that I prayed when I was nine. I mean, clearly, clearly that was what God wanted, right? He wanted me to go forward in a service and, and pray a prayer, a prayer confessing sin and asking Jesus to forgive me and to come into my heart. And, you know, that's the mechanism of salvation, is it not? That's the, the, the key that turns the lock, or the ignition, maybe I should say, of, of salvation, right? And, and shouldn't I get credit for that? See, all, all of these questions and probably a thousand more are what were eating away at me, and I was growing more and more distraught by the day, and the more I read scripture, the worse it got. And the more I'm hearing people preach and teach, the worse it's getting. And then two things happened that uh, brought all of this to a head. The first was something that uh, a Bible teacher of mine, Dr. Mark Minnick, still one of my absolute all-time favorite Bible teachers, a Bible teacher of mine said during one of our Bible classes, it was, and I've shared this before, so stick with me again, it was just an illustration. I don't even remember what we were looking at in Scripture or why he used this illustration. I just remembered it because it, gra it just grasped my heart and mind in a way never, uh, never had before. He told us to close our eyes and to imagine ourselves sitting in one of those old-timey coal carts, like you see miners throwing coal into in old movies you know I'm talking to, those little boxes on wheels and on track. He's like, picture yourself sitting in one of these, and you're at the top of a really tall mountain, and the tracks go down the mountain, and at the end, there's a cliff, and the, the tracks just come off the cliff. And beyond that is just darkness. You can't see anything. You don't know what's there. He says, this is kind of what your life is like. You know, when you, you're born, you start off at the top of the cliff, and you begin to live, and you begin to go down, down, down. And the older you get, the faster you get, right? Everybody who's older, we, we, we feel that more and more each year. And he's, until one day, he's like, you come to the end of the cliff, and you fly off the end of the cliff into the chasm below, into the darkness. And he asked us one single question at this point. I'm like totally in, right? I'm imagining this, my eyes closed. He's like, who are you trusting in to catch you? And for me, I knew the answer that came immediately to my mind was me. 
Like I could almost literally picture me like trying to get my arms outside the cart to grab the bottom of it, right? But I knew. I mean, here I'm picturing. It's a dumb illustration. I get it. It's hokey. But, but, but for me, it was the very first time I had felt truly helpless, spiritually speaking. There was something about that picture and that just me imagining this moment that was like burned into my heart and mind in a way that I could not escape from. And I hated that feeling of helplessness that I couldn't catch me, that, that, that killed me. And this led to a second incident, which honestly, I don't even remember. You say, how's it an incident if you don't remember it? I don't know, but it is. Somehow, it was, I don't know, it was like Thursday, I remember that. Uh, October 17th of 1996, I remember that as well. It, it must have been something that was said either in a sermon I heard in chapel that day or in a Bible class. I have no memory of what it was. All I know is what came out of it. That's the only thing I remember. And what came out of it was a feeling of like despair. Like all these other questions and these feelings have been you know, rattling around inside my heart and mind for weeks now. And whatever is said this day, like pushed me over the edge, right? And here I go to class after chapel, and I'm sitting there. I'm not paying any attention. I have no memory of what happened the rest of that day. I just remember being in despair, so much so that as soon as my classes were done, I didn't go hang out with friends. I didn't go you know, anywhere else. I went straight back to my dorm room, and I grabbed this little New Testament that I had been given as a gift when I graduated from high school. And in the back of this New Testament, there was a section that said where to go when you're, you know, like angry, or where to go when you're tempted, or where to go when you're whatever, okay? It had a, that, the kind of, and it had a list of verses under each of those so you'd know where to turn and you could read. So I went to where to go when you're like afraid or tortured. I don't remember what it was now. It was one of those things. It was probably afraid. Uh, and one of the verses that he gave was 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Now, I'm not going to put this up here behind me. I just want you to listen. I'm going to pick up and start reading in verse 3. This is Paul talking to Timothy, and he says in verse 3, I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And here is the verse that that section was taking me to. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. However, at this point, all I had was fear. All. No power, no love, no self-control. And this comment by Paul, quite frankly, didn't help me at all. Nothing. Because I'm like, this is pointless. I got, <laughs> I've got fear. I don't know who's given it to me, but I've got it, and I don't have any of the other things that he said. And now I have no memory again as to why I kept reading from that point. You would think I would have just, you know, flipped the page or done, you know, gone back to the little list of verses to find something else, but for some reason. I kept reading, and God was getting ready to open my eyes to something that I had never understood before this moment. And at this point, I will put this up here behind me. Paul continues then in verse 8. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Paul's in prison, by the way, here. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling 
not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And that was as far as I made it that day. You know, I have been at this point now for weeks wrestling with the question of how is a person saved? How? How does this this happen? And and yeah, I thought I knew. I, I, I had a lot of the basic facts and information correct. I really did. But something was off. And now here I was staring at these words. And it was as if everything was coming into focus all at once. How are we saved? Well, Paul makes it very clear here. The same thing he says in Galatians 2. It's not because of our works. There was nothing, nothing that I could do to to gain God's favor, nothing that he would accept. And for someone who is and was as proud and self-reliant as I tend to be and am, and my wife would probably say amen at that moment, uh, you know, that's a hard pill to swallow. To hear that all of a sudden, I, what, I can't? God, you won't take me just because of, of who I am? Like, and as dumb as this sounds, I sat there and debated God on this point. I mean, certainly he would take someone like me, right? I wasn't overtly sinful. I knew a lot of people who were a lot worse off than I was. You, you get the idea. You probably heard people say similar things. You may have thought them yourself at some point. And yet the words are like staring at me, right? In black and white, not because of, our, of your works. He would not accept me simply because I wasn't that bad. Well, well then, okay, let's up it a little bit. Would you accept me if I did a lot of stuff for you? Would you accept me if I went out and just served you and gave my entire life to you to doing whatever you want? I, you know who I was at that point? I was the guy in Matthew 7 from last Sunday. That's exactly who I was. Lord, Lord, what if I do all these great things in your name? Won't you take me then? I, I, I'm sitting here like having this like conversation, and yet again, I'm looking down at these words, and I see the answer is no. Okay, what, what about that prayer then? What about what I did at nine and that little experience? What, wasn't that what you wanted? And, and, and nothing here, I want to be real careful with this, because I think I've... Um, brought undue fear to people occasionally in the past when I've told this story. It's not about my experience with that prayer. Let's be real clear about that right off the bat. But I knew that for me, okay, I can only speak for me. I knew that for me in that moment when I was nine, I was actually putting my faith in the prayer. As if the prayer was like the magic formula that God wanted to hear from me in order, you know, it was like the, the secret handshake to get into the club kind of thing. My confidence was in my prayer. My confidence was perhaps in myself, but my confidence was definitely not in Christ. Does that make sense? Okay, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to make anyone else question. I'm telling you what was true for me with that moment. And so, you know, God, what, what will you accept then? If it's not my goodness, if it's not me serving you, if it's not even that prayer, what will you take? And the answer again is, it's staring me back right here, black and white on the page. He saves us because of his own purpose and grace. And those two words killed me. You would think they'd be comforting at that moment, but they weren't. Not right at that second, they weren't. They killed me. Because for the very first time, I saw that God saves us, not because we choose him, but because he chooses us. 
that our salvation is ultimately a result of his decision, not ours. And then when he decides to give it, he gives it out of grace and grace alone. Nothing on my part. Nothing. Nothing. Not a single thing. We can never deserve it. Here I am. I'm wanting to deserve it with every last ounce of my being. I want to deserve it. And I see here for the very first time in my life that I could never deserve it. It wasn't a prayer I could pray. Not a life I could live. Not an act I could perform. Not a decision I could make. Nothing at all that I could do. I really was as helpless as that illustration made me feel. And I understood all of that for the first time. All I could do, and I mean all I could do then, is put every last ounce, speck, and drop of my hope in Jesus. That's it. Either God would accept his, me through his son, or he wouldn't accept me at all. That I had nothing else but Jesus and though I didn't fully understand it at that moment, I would say that that was the moment that I was truly born again. That's what I, when I tell the story, it's kind of where I go with it. And you might think, well, that, you know, great story. I'm glad you got it all worked out. No, it wasn't quite that simple. <laughs> uh, for the next, I mean, months, probably year and a half even, it would not be a, a stretch at all. I mean, I wrestled. What happened there? Like, I, I was so confused in my own heart and mind about all the things that I had seen and heard growing up, and, and now I'm reading Scripture, and things are making sense to me for the first time, and it was, a, it was a rough period, to be quite honest with you, that first year, year and a half after that moment. But, but one of the things that I really had to wrestle with and try to come to grips with is the very question that's before us this morning. What exactly then is the nature of true saving faith? What, what wasn't true when I was nine that was true when I was 18? I, I just didn't understand. And it was this passage that we're coming to now here in Romans 4 that God really used to help me understand this. This is why I wanted you to look at this this week and to think deeply about what Paul says about the faith of Abraham here in this passage. And so I just want to walk through it a little bit with you, kind of quickly, but I want you to see a few things here in the text that I hope will help you. In verse 1 he says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but, but not before God. Now just pause and ask yourself a question. Did Abraham live such a, a tremendously righteous life that he deserved salvation? He's the one guy in all of human history who actually deserved it. No. You read through Genesis, it's very clear. Abraham is a sinner just like you and I. So clearly, Paul says, he didn't have that to boast about before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and that it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, I really, really wanted to preach an entire sermon on just this alone, but I'm going to forgo that for now because Paul is going to come back to the same reference in Galatians chapter 3, and we'll cover it there. But for now, know that what Paul is referring to is the moment in Genesis 15 when God tells Abraham, well, first Abraham comes to God and says, look, I have no child. Everything I own is going to go to Eleazar of Damascus, okay? I, I've got no one. And God says, listen, you're going to have a son. 
You're going to have a child. You're going to be the father of many nations, offspring like you wouldn't believe. You're going to have all this. And even though both Abraham and Sarah were far, far, far too old to have children, Abraham believes God. Just believes him. Remember that detail. And we're told in Genesis 15 that God counts Abraham's faith in that moment as righteousness. In other words, this is the moment that Abraham is saved, if we want to use kind of our modern terminology to think about it. This is the moment he is justified. And he's not justified because he's good. He's not justified because he, he necessarily does anything. He's justified, counted as righteous because he believes, because he trusts what God has told him. He goes on, he says, now to the one who works, his wages are counted as a gift, are not counted as a gift, excuse me, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, Paul just turned this into a truism that he's sort of applying to all of us. Do you want to be justified? Is that what you want? Okay, well then, like Abraham, remember, you can't earn your, righteous, your uh, salvation through righteousness, uh, through works of your own. You need to have faith. You need to believe in him who justifies the ungodly. Okay, so far, so good, but it still really hasn't answered our question. But now, beginning in verse 7, Paul takes the argument down this little rabbit trail of sorts. It's not really, but I'll call it that for a moment, where he begins to make some various points from the Old Testament, that, that the promise of justification uh, by faith, not works, is not just for the Jews, it's for all humanity, that Abraham then is, is not simply the father of, of the Jews, he's the father of everyone who has faith like him. He's really trying to give us a, a bigger view of the Old Testament here, a bigger understanding. But since we're going to cover a lot of this in Galatians, let's skip down to verse 16. He continues in in verse 16, he goes, that, all the stuff that I just talked about, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, the Jew, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, which is what I was just telling you about. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And can I ask you a quick question? Why does he say that there at the end of verse 17? That thing about God giving life to the dead and, and calling into existence things that, that do not exist. Well, well, who's he talking to again? Abraham, right? And in Genesis 15, as God is making all these amazing promises to Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. And if you can count the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky, that's how many children you'll have. As God is saying all of this, what is the big problem that's facing us in the story? It's Abraham and Sarah. They're elderly. In Genesis 15, Abraham is in his late 90s. And Sarah is probably very uh, in her very late 80s at that point. She has Isaac when she's 90, so I'm going to assume she's like 88 or 89-ish, but whatever, it doesn't matter. You get the idea. They're old. They're, they're very old. As you'll see shortly in Genesis, the problem really isn't so much Abraham as he's able to father a child with Hagar. The issue here is Sarah. She has been barren her entire life, so in all her normal childbearing years, she was never able to conceive. And now we're well past that point. I mean, we are postmenopausal. This is done. She's an, she's an old woman now. No more children for her. This isn't, this isn't even in the realm 
of possibility, from the perspective of having children together, they are dead. They're as good as dead. Right? There's nothing. And now, listen to these next verses, because I'm just going to read them all here. In hope. If you ever wanted to underline a phrase, underline these first like six words or whatever they are here. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Do you, do you see what Paul is doing here? He, he is answering the very question we've set before ourselves today. What kind of faith does God count as righteousness? What kind of faith saves us? Well, it's this kind of faith. It's Abraham's kind of faith. What kind of faith did Abraham have? Let's go back to verse 18. It starts with Abraham recognizing his own hopelessness and helplessness, right? God has given him some amazing promises. You're going to be the father of many nations. Of, of all these kids, so many you'll never be able to count them. These are, these are staggering promises. And yet, Abraham has nothing. He has absolutely nothing. No hope, no abilities, no, no confidence in the flesh. He has nothing, and he knows that. He recognizes that in him, in himself, and in his situation, there is no ability to bring about what God has promised. It's not like you're like, hey, Sarah, I got some candles and some music going. You know, let's go, right? He doesn't have any hope, no ability whatsoever. And yet, what does Paul say? In hope, in hope, in hope, he believes against hope. Think about that. In hope, he believes against hope. What does that mean? It's, it's as simple as the fact that he took everything that God had said to him and he put his faith in that and not in himself. Not in his situation, not in his ability to fulfill these things. In fact, it's, it's, you can almost read that as like a surrendering of his own ability. I, I, I can't. <laughs> this isn't possible. This, this can't be. Like, but I believe. I don't know how God's going to do it, but I I believe it's an abandonment of all confidence or hope in himself or Sarah or even in the normal processes of conception and birth. If this thing was going to happen, it was going to be because God himself did it and that was enough for Abraham. He had the audacity to believe, to trust that God was going to do what otherwise could not be done. He didn't weaken in his faith. When he looks at himself or his wife, his faith is not in himself. It's not in Sarah's womb at this moment. Do you understand? He is fully convinced that God would do what he had promised. And that is why, Paul says, Abraham's faith is counted as righteousness against all other hope. Having no hope in himself, he hoped in God himself 
He puts every last speck of confidence in God, and that was what God wanted. Now, let's finish Romans 4, because I think you're going to love where Paul takes this at the end. He goes, but the words, it was counted to him, <laughs> they were not written for his sake alone. You understand, when you're reading Genesis 15, Paul says, that's, that's not for Abraham alone. Abraham benefits, obviously, but it's not just for Abraham. Moses didn't write that down so we could get some cool knowledge about what happened in Abraham's life. He says, it was written for ours also. It will be counted to us. If we have that same kind of faith, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In other words, when we, like Abraham, come to the point where we recognize that we have no hope, we have nothing. And when in that moment we put every last bit, drop, speck of our hope in God's offer of his own son on our behalf, when we do that, no hope now in ourselves or in anything else, then that faith, that kind of hope is what God counts as righteousness. You see, there are different types of faith after all. I said it to you a few weeks ago. Some people don't really think about it, but, but there are. You know, some people have faith like the person that we saw last week in James chapter 2. For them, uh, faith is something that they claim to have, but somehow doesn't actually do anything in their lives. It's kind of like owning a football jersey, but not playing on the team is what I would liken it to. A lot of us have football jerseys hanging in our closets, the teams we claim to root for when they're doing well. But um, that jersey's never once made it out on the field. It's just for show. It's just so you can put it on and pretend, really. That's all it is. And, and for a lot of people, in the end, their faith is kind of like that. It, it's it's a, a, a nice little show for them that shows who they root for and kind of what they identify with, but it never has actually made it out on the field. Their faith is, it hangs in the closet, if you want to think of it like that. does no good. They root for Team Jesus, Team Christianity, just never shows up anywhere else. No fruit, no change. You know, I, I've thought about this before. What if, what if we were to go to our friends, our family, our coworkers, whatever the case may be, and ask them, what do you, what do you like, really think of my religious affiliation? I don't know how you'd ask the question exactly, but I mean, would they even go, yeah, I totally see you're a Christian? If I went to your friends and family and coworkers and I were to ask them, would they, would they clearly know, hey, He's a Christian. She's a believer. Like she's different. He's different. Something's, or be like, oh yeah, they're just totally like me. Like what would they say? That that's a kind of faith, I guess you could say. Or you root for Team Jesus. You've got the jersey, but but that is not the kind of faith that saves us. James says in James chapter two. Real faith produces results. It changes us. Sometimes those results are slow, but but they got to come at some point or another. You got to be out on the field in the jersey. Other people have faith like, like the folks that Jesus mentions here in Matthew 7, right? But that faith was in the end not in Christ, even though they knew who he was and they call out to him in that moment. That, that faith was really in themselves. And you say, how do you know that faith was in themselves? Well, that's easy. Because when the moment came where Jesus, they're standing before Christ and he says, no, you can't come into heaven. What's the first thing they say back to him? But, but, but look at all we did. See, okay, you want to do a little test of yourself? Imagine for a moment you die on the way home, and you're standing before heaven, before, you know, the gates of heaven or whatever, and Jesus is there, and, and uh, you say, can I come in? He's like, no. <laughs> no. 
What's your but response? But, but, but. What would you say back? What would be your rebuttal to that, you know, to that denial? If it's anything like, you know, but, but I've been a good person, or but, but I did, I went to church, but, 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 you know, it probably will tell you a little bit about where your faith really lies. If you have any, like, fallback spot, like those people in Matthew 7 did, um, you've got a problem. I'm not trying to scare you, but I'm trying to be honest with you. If you've got a fallback, you've got a problem. Your answer in that hypothetical scenario will probably tell you something about your faith. You know, I have for years loved, we don't sing it ever because we all got tired of it growing up, the old hymn, Just As I Am. But if you think about the opening verse of that song, it, it communicates more truth than most Christian songs today will ever communicate. Is just as I am without one plea, but, but, here's my only one, that thy blood was shed for me. That's it. That's all I've got. Like, you have to come to that point where, you know, if you're standing there and Jesus says, no, you can't come to heaven, you're like, well, I'm, I'm done. Like, I got nothing else. If you're not enough, Jesus, I've got nothing. I have no buts now. I have no fallback, no rebuttal, no answer for you. One plea, and that thy blood was shed for me. That's it. You really believe that? I mean... That your one and only plea before God is that the blood of Jesus was shed for you and that if that isn't enough, you have nothing? No hope whatsoever? See, the only kind of faith that saves us is the kind that is all in with Christ. All in. That, that, that trusts, truly trusts that God will accept us in and through the blood, the death, the burial, the resurrection of his son that he sent for us. This is why I've said to you in the past that when it comes to salvation, you cannot have a diversified portfolio, right? You can't put eggs in different baskets. You can't have any fallback plans. Not in real faith. Not in real, genuine, saving faith. If I go back to that coal cart illustration, it's when you're willing to fly off the tracks, right? Into the darkness, and there's no screaming and yelling and trying to make a parachute out of your shirt or whatever the case may be, where you're willing to just sit back and go, okay, Jesus, it's you or nothing. It's you or nothing. If he doesn't catch you, you've got nothing. Again, I know the illustration is a little hokey, but it's always meant a lot to me. It's, it's, it's that kind of confidence, that kind of trust in nothing other than God and God alone and Christ and Christ alone that I would say biblically constitutes the nature of true saving faith. You bow your heads with me. Father, I, it is so easy for us to put our confidence in so many other things. Even, even now it's so easy. I, I, I feel what Paul says in Philippians 3, that sometimes I have this desire to go back and rebuild a righteousness of my own, to still somehow try to, to earn or deserve or to create a backup plan or something. But we're reminded constantly that that doesn't work. It can never work. We, we never were good, good enough and we never will be good enough. We, we never could deserve it. We never will deserve it. We are either saved by your own purpose and grace or we are not saved at all. Either Jesus does this or, or we have nothing. 
And so I pray that for everyone in this room this morning who is a genuine believer in you, that they will be reminded that they have nothing but you, Christ, nothing. But that will be enough. That they will rest in that. Take confidence in that. If we have nothing but you, we have more than everyone else. There is nothing that could ever surpass you. No hope that could ever be greater. And so may we rest confidently in the truth that we have you and you are more than enough. But for anyone in this room who for whatever reason doesn't have that confidence, I pray, Lord, that you will speak to them, that your spirit will be at work in their heart, that you will open their eyes to see where their faith truly lies, if they have faith at all. And that they will stop attempting to save themselves, stop attempting to put their confidence in this thing or that thing, but will simply surrender, abandon all hope in everything else, and turn to you and take that free gift that you give to us, your own purpose and grace. It's there. May your spirit work in all of our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.